Good evening. I'm Brandon Harbath. I have the privilege of serving as one of the uh, elders here uh, at Cornerstone Church, um, not as a preaching pastor. So maybe that'll tell you a little bit uh, something about tonight. This is somewhat out of my comfort zone, and I don't mind saying so. So, um, so why am I here tonight? Uh, I've been asked to speak on First John. Hopefully, you've actually read up the first four chapters, and I'm not just the one left out hanging starting in chapter 5 tonight. So uh, as I've been given to understand, as you've been walking through First John, uh, I had the opportunity to sign up for a date. I picked this one. It happened to be one of the most... I'll say controversial and fun five verses in the entire book. For those of you that know First John well, you might know what I'm talking about. But I have five very simple goals this evening uh, to share the Word of God with you. It's a simple enough goal. The second is to help us see, when I say us, I pray the Holy Spirit would help us and help me see the gospel clearly in his Word tonight. Make sure that we can understand what it's actually telling us. Uh, if you've spent any time in First John at all, you know there's a lot of mental gymnastics that are happening in this book, and we need the Holy Spirit's help to understand it and understand what it's telling us. More importantly, I think, next to that is that we have the conviction uh, from the Holy Spirit and that we're moved to change by God's Word. And we need the Holy Spirit to help push it into our collective consciences tonight. So that's my prayer. Those are my goals for this evening. hope that's uh, simple enough. I will warn you in advance, uh, I told Chase, um, I'm not stopping, so this is probably a solid 60 minutes. You've been fed, I've been told, we've had some music, so sit back, right, take it in. But um, we have a lot of content to get through, primarily because you cannot start chapter 5 without going back through chapter 1 through 4. Don't let that depress you, it's going to be fun, so trust me, all right. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, you know my weakness. I need your strength. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak tonight to the hearts and lives that are in this room, those that need to know you as their Savior, that you would open their eyes and remove the scales, those that need encouragement and exhortation tonight, Lord, that you would do it in their hearts, and those that uh, need to spend some time in just worshiping you and rekindling um, that amazing grace that you've done in their life. I pray that you would help them with that tonight as well. We pray these things in your son's holy name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we, um, and I will use this. I'm going to look down, but I promise just because it's lengthy, I'm going to stick to my script as best uh, as I can. But we are in First John chapter 5, but I warned you we're going to go back to chapter 1. Uh, if you are a fast flipper and you can keep up with what I'm referencing, help yourself. Otherwise, uh, enjoy the walk, uh, if you will, as I go through it. So, we're going to uncover and go back through a little bit and uncover not just, uh, I'll call them the birthmarks uh, that John sets out for us here in uh, the book of 1 John, or the symptoms of the Holy Spirit, I think as he would probably call them, uh, the down payment, right? The Holy Spirit, the down payment of our uh, ultimate glorification. But these verses take us right to the epicenter, uh, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 5, the epicenter of the Christian faith. A lot's been building up until this point. You may not have seen it, and that's okay. We're going to go through it, but these verses are going to walk us through the object of our faith, what it is, how we receive it, how it's sustained in us, its value as a weapon in our spiritual warfare, the power it yields, or I should say wields against Satan and his demons, and ultimately what it's accomplishing uh, in us, not only in this life, but also after the first death, right? 
So I'm not going to be able to cover all of the ground tonight. My guess is you'll have some questions. I noticed a lovely little question basket in the back, uh, so you're welcome to put those in. Uh, and those of you that have my number, you're welcome to spread it around if you want to text me later or in your small group discussions. I don't think I'm going to be staying that late. I wasn't invited. I'll put it that way. I'm just kidding. All right, so chapter 1 through 4 review. Let's go through this. Since we're beginning uh, anew in chapter 5 today, the beginning of the end uh, for First John, the last chapter in a book that, in my mind, is absolutely soaked, and I mean saturated, if you haven't noticed it yet, with love. It's oozing love, right? But it's not just love. It's oozing love, faith, and obedience. And these three intertwine, and they work together very carefully throughout the book, the unbreakable connections between those three, and they're packed with extremely practical, if-then, statements for the logical Christian. Uh, and I want to start by recapping uh, where we've been from that point of view. So uh, I've told you, I've not been with you here for the journey, to be clear, uh, but my hope is that as you've walked together through First uh, John, we'll bring it together here in the end. So I want you to imagine a beautiful coloring book, very simple illustration, uh, nothing elaborate or uh, crazy here. Imagine, you know, they have the adult ones now. You can get the, the incredible adult coloring books. Uh, Josh has them. I see him using them all the time. Um, it's not true. But in First John, he's carefully, this is the way I, I see it, he's carefully coloring in uh, these beautiful lines and pictures of the Savior. He's coloring the picture for us of the gospel. He's got a lot of stark contrasts and comparisons, sharp lines. He's got all these brilliant hues that he's putting in shades of color to really bring clarity to the gospel. You've got to read it carefully to see this. But it's full of logic statements, clear visuals, so that frankly, at the end of the day, there can be no mistake what the true follower of Christ should, and I love this word, smell like, what the aroma of Christ on us really is and what it should be, how we ooze, like John does in this gospel, the aroma of Christ, the smell of that sin sacrifice for the slain lamb. So chapter 1 of 1 John, we begin by hearing John's testimony. So this isn't the first time John has told his story, right? It's not. It's a lot like we see in the Gospel of John. You can go back and read that in chapter 1, and I'm just going to quote it quickly. In the beginning, he says, was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You're going to see the same theme in 1 John. Verse 9 goes on. He says, the true light which gave uh, or gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This is John's testimony. He's not like you and I. He walked and he talked with Jesus in the flesh, physically. I have no idea what this would be like. I can imagine in my prayer life and in my walk with Christ <clears throat> spiritually. But he sat directly under his teaching. This isn't a secondhand word or a testimony that John is sharing, clearly inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he sat under the direct teaching of Jesus Christ. And in my mind, I can't imagine uh, a more insane time to be alive, the incarnate Christ in the flesh. Uh, but John knew this testimony wasn't for himself alone. It wasn't for his own salvation alone. It was ultimately to bring a people uh, or harvest into Christ uh, through his word so that his joy could be complete. And he says that. He, you see that in chapter 1. So here we begin to see this unfolding of John's uh, famous first if-then statements, this sort of inescapable logic of salvation uh, in the gospel message, if you can call it logic. As you likely saw uh, in numerous passages when you guys went through it, through the first four chapters, John's very good at this, these uh, mental gymnastics, as I called them earlier. It helps us more fully see and understand with our heads, 
but ultimately to worship with our hearts who God really is in the story of the gospel. So he tells us first, the first one is what? God is light, right? We saw that in John chapter 1 in the gospel of John. If that's the case, he goes on, if God is light, then there are ramifications. There's an impact. There's a logical truth to be had here. If God is light, and we say we have fellowship with him, the light, while we walk in darkness, what do we do? We lie. We don't practice the truth. If we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and our sin is cleansed by the blood of Jesus. He goes back again and doubles down and says, but if we say we don't have sin, we've deceived ourselves and the truth is not in us. He comes back. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. These are very reassuring words John starts in his first chapter with, but at the same time, I hope you'll agree with me, profoundly scary words. We see it a bit clearer what we must do, right? We see this in the first chapter and what success, if you want to call it that, looks like in the so-called Christian life. Don't let those words scare you yet. I'm going to come back and correct everything I'm saying. We see what we think we're going to have to do, right? What that success looks like in the so-called Christian life. As he started out, God is light. And if you want salvation, you too have to come out of the darkness. You have to confess your sins, and you've got to come into the light, right? We read this. Or else, what happens? You have no fellowship with God. But what's the point? Why? Well, you've got to read on to chapter 2, which, again, I hope you did. So as you read on to chapter 2, you'll find that the point is very simple. It's so that we may not sin. As chapter 2 begins, we're immediately told the point so that, as John calls us little children, I want to talk about that in a second, we may not sin. I have to pause here just briefly and tell you a quick story I've read about the Apostle John um, Begins in chapter 2, calling us little children. You see that theme a couple of times. Uh, Douglas O'Donnell uh, recounts uh, one of Jerome's commentaries. If you know Jerome on the book of uh, Galatians, he famously tells a story of the Apostle John. Um, ancient tradition says that when the Apostle John was near death, his voice grew so weak that he could no longer preach to the congregation in Ephesus. But every Sunday as he arrived at church, he would offer the identical exhortation. He said, Little children love one another. And when the congregation grew tired of the same sentence over and over, someone finally stopped and asked John, why do you so frequently say this to us? Why do you repeat it? And he replied, I say what I say because it's the Lord's command. And if this is all you do, it is enough. So clearly an important ethic, love, but that's not what John's talking about here. True Christ-like love is way more than just an ethics-based action. It's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit that's in our lives and a sure sign of your faith. And we're going to come back to the sign and obedience to God's commandments. So back on track with chapter 2. We've come into the light. We've confessed our sins so that we may not sin or continue sinning. So if we're now in the light and we're confessing our sin, what does that mean for us when we do sin? He doesn't say you don't sin at all, right? John's already there in chapter 2. He's ready to answer the question. He's anticipated it. He tells us right away, none of us are without sin. He says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and hopefully you 
also learned about that word. I won't go into it in detail, but the covering for our sin. And John moves on in chapter 2 to help us understand how we know when we're saved. And this is important. I hope you know how and when you're saved. He helps us with this. Yes, we are living in the light and we are confessing our sin, but he builds on this and he says it's when we keep his commandments. This is the mark. This is the mark in chapter 2 that we see. In chapter 1, John began to unpack that first mark, that first, first birthmark of walking in the light and confessing our sin, not walking in the darkness. And we're a confessing people. That's what it looks like. That's the mark. It's not if we sin, it's what we do when we sin. It's fighting that battle daily, and that's what he tells us. Actively fighting it against sin, not giving into it. And he moves on to say that this will produce in us obedience to his commandments. Keeping his commandments, walking in the light. This is his constant theme, and then he tells us that this will produce in us love for our brothers in Christ. He begins to unpack that theme a little bit further, and I hope this will ultimately make sense as we make our way to chapter 5. John takes a little detour here when he talks about love, and he stops to make sure the reader is clear about what true uh, love looks like, and more importantly, what it does not look like. So specifically in verse 15 to 17 in chapter 2, He tells us not to misplace our love. I'm guilty of this. I'm sure you've felt the same. Our love for others is not to be misconstrued with love for the world. In fact, quite the opposite. He tells us in verse 15 to 17, Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is not the love John is talking about here. For all that is in the world, he says, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John goes on to expound on the spirit of the Antichrist. We've seen the difference between darkness and light. We've seen the difference between Real love and false love, we're looking now at the difference between the real Holy Spirit and the Antichrist. And he says that we can tell them apart, right? It's hard to do. He says the wheat and the tares, right, will grow, we see in the Gospels together until harvest time. Sometimes it's a little hard to tell the difference, frankly. But there's one telltale sign between the Holy Spirit and the spirit of the Antichrist, which is everyone else, by the way, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And it's those who deny Christ. You can't deny Christ and have the Father. You can't do it. The promise we get is a result of abiding in Christ, and therefore the Father is eternal life. This is what he tells us in chapter 2. He wraps up this chapter telling us that righteousness cannot exist apart from Christ. The world wants you to think, by the way, that righteousness absolutely exists apart from Christ, and you can have it. It's immediately, this statement alone disqualifies every other religion on the planet and reminds us how narrow the gate really is and, frankly, how wide the great the gate to destruction. Righteousness cannot exist apart from Christ. Christ equals righteousness, and therefore those who practice righteousness have Christ. His logic is flawless. Chapter 3, we've got to move on, and I'm going to go quicker, I promise. We've got moving reminder that the kind of love God has given us is not the fake love or the fake righteousness that he warns us against in chapter 2. This is where he's going. He's saying this is not the love of the world that I'm talking about. This is the love of God that he's given us. And by the way, it's a fatherly love such that we should be called children of God. And there it is again. And so we are, he says. So let me pause briefly on this issue. I want to talk about 
who our father is and what that means. And I hope this is all old information as you went back through chapter three and maybe some of your notes. We find it beautifully captured, my favorite at least in Romans 8, 15 to 16. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoptions as sons by who we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The testimony of the Holy Spirit, if you've ever thought about what that is, is captured in those very two simple and amazing words. It's Abba, Father. By the way, uh, most of the New Testament Aramaic was translated. (laughs) Uh, They intentionally kept this word Abba in there and did not translate it because it was so shocking to the Jews of the time. You don't use the word daddy when you talk about God in heaven. This is shocking. We are no longer slaves to the slave master sin ruled by fear. We've been grafted into the branches, Paul tells us. We've been adopted as sons, and we are now joint heirs with Jesus. So John compels us here to think deeply about whether or not we're reflecting that deep Abba Father testimony of the Holy Spirit in the words that we say, the actions that we do, our deeds. When we allow the fears in life and the flesh to take over, we tend to shrink away from speaking boldly the word of God. I don't know if you've experienced this, but it's like we see at the end of chapter 2. We lose sight of who our daddy is. We drift, as the writer of Hebrews says. Is your hope deep in the knowledge of God's law, knowing with confidence that his word will not return void and we can approach his throne with boldness and confidence, like Isaiah. So John continues with this theme. You can't be in Christ, by the way, abiding in Christ and continue sinning. This is important. You can't move beyond this without deeply and consciously taking an account of your life and proofing your Christianity. You got to stop and you have to think about it. Have you killed any sin lately? This is what he's asking you. Are you actively engaged in the battle? If you're a casual sin slayer or you can't even remember the last time you repented of sin in your life or killed sin in your life, then John begs this question, do you even know him? You haven't even seen him if you're not doing that. If you aren't in the battle, you don't know God. He doesn't even stop here. He goes on to tell us that if you continue practicing sin, practicing sin, you're of the devil. You can't claim to love God and claim to be regenerate, claim to be a Christian and continue living in sin, period. What's worse, one clear example of this lifestyle of sin that John gives here is namely not loving your brother. He talks a lot about loving your brother, But the example he gives here of this lifestyle of sin, the unrepentant, unregenerate sinner, is not loving your brother. That's the antithesis. John continues his theme. He tells us, love one another. The world will hate you. That's what the world does. The world hates you, just like Cain hated Abel. The darkness flees from the light. The darkness hates the light. And when you're not loving your brother, you are part of that darkness. You're not walking in the light. So there's some practical examples and tests here to know if you're loving your brother because I don't know about you, but I need practical examples 
to talk to this thick brain. Do you have stuff? Do you have stuff? By the way, all of us live in America, I think. I think last I checked, Delaware's still in the union. We all have stuff in America, and we got a lot of stuff. John says, if you have stuff and you refuse to give it to a brother who's clearly in need, you are not loving your brother. It isn't good, good enough to just talk about love from this podium or in our home groups or in our Bible studies or in refuge at night or in our devotions on a daily basis or when we're driving in our car or when we're on our knees. True love, John tells us, compels us to action. We have love in word and talk. But more importantly, John is telling us it's indeed and in truth. So there's no doubt that the love John has in mind here is not casual love. It's a love that lays down its life for a brother, just as Christ did. Philippians 2 tells us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in all things consider others as more highly than yourself. Our hearts, my friend, are fickle. When we go before the Father, it's going to condemn us. That's what he tells us in chapter 3. The guilt is strong and often very strong. God's promise to us here is, if that's you, he will restore you. He will forgive you, and he will strengthen us. So John finishes chapter 3 by reminding us that we will know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So in chapter 3, we see this new birthmark. It's the Spirit. All right, but be careful. We're not done. We're not at 5 yet. You've... uh, Got to stay with me on the spirit. As you start chapter 4, John reminds us that not every spirit is of God. And he's using the same logic. He's walking right back to say, but be careful. The proof is the Holy Spirit, but not every spirit is of God. So how are you going to know the difference? Many false spirits, he says, have gone out into the world. But there is a litmus test, thank God, for the church to know. And it says every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. If not, they're not from God. If you are from God, you'll listen to the apostles, their teachings, because they're from God. This is what he says. We know that they're from God, John, namely. He's testified to these things and to the Holy Spirit and has the Spirit. All right, so what now? What now? We're running out of excuses not to love. You see where he's going? We've completed this litmus test, and you know that your brothers are from God. They're walking in their light. You see the connections. They're confessing their sins, and they're in need. He's taking away every excuse to not love your brother that you can possibly think of. They profess Christ. They have the Spirit. They're in need. So what's the next step? It's very simple. Love one another, John says. Little children, love one another. And we need to be careful here about the origination and this orientation of where this love that we should have for our brothers uh, comes from. John is pretty specific. He's not telling us to go manifest love in and of ourselves because we happen to like the person and we get along with them. That's not what John tells us, and so therefore we have love. Well, I I really like Chase. He's got a cool haircut, and, you know, that that new baby just makes him super cute. So, you know, I I, I like – so it's okay. I'm going to love Chase. But Josh, I don't know, yellow is just not my color. I can't do it. This is not what John says.
We cannot manifest love for our brothers in and of ourselves. And if you're trying to do that, stop. You will go before the Lord with a guilty heart every time, failing miserably like he just got done telling us in chapter 3. Our love orientation should begin with God and the work that he has done. He says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Therefore, we must love one another. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. I got to tell you a quick story to tell you I I love art. Um, If you've been to my house, you might know that, particularly art by specific artists. That's A-R-T, art. Um, Two of my favorite types of art are silver and furniture, silversmiths uh, and furniture, particularly from Delaware. Perhaps not the most traditional forms of art I know. You can mock me later, but stay with me. When I latch on to an artist, I recognize their name. (laughs) And I know their work. I know what it looks like. But then I run into this piece of art that I don't necessarily like. In fact, I think it looks stupid. Then I notice the signature on it, or the hallmark on that piece of art. And I realize, ooh, I love this artist. Therefore, no matter how ugly I perceive that piece of art to be, my mind and my heart instantly change to love that piece of art because I see it through the lens of the artist now, and I consider the brilliance of the artist that I so dearly love. I impute my love for the artist onto all of their works, regardless of my taste for the individual piece. He says, little children, love one another. If we love one another, verse 12 tells us God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. All right, so now we know the marks of abiding in him and he in us. He's given us a spirit by whom we can cry out the Father. We testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. As a result, we come to know the love of God, and if we abide in love, we also abide in God, and therefore God abides in us. If you followed that, it's a massive circular reference, and it's awesome. This leads us to extreme confidence and no fear before the throne of God because this perfect love that's been imputed on us casts out all fear. The fifth one, any inconsistencies, though, any inconsistencies in this pattern, for example... As John tells us, saying you love God, but then you don't love your brother. The logic instantly breaks down. You are a liar and the truth is not in you. And then lastly, you have to love the artist's work in order to claim to love the artist. If you say you love God, you must also love your brother. Period. That was my intro. Now we begin chapter 5. This is where we stand as we walk into chapter 5. John has told us clearly, love is the key. You know this, right? He's intricately built these links of his chain, interwoven them together for us. It's getting stronger and stronger. It's probably unbreakable at this point, but helps us clearly see the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Why? Why is he doing this? It's so we can be real. It's so that we can be authenticated like my favorite artwork. It's authenticating the art, intricate works of art by the creator himself. And he tells us, walk in the light, confess your sins, obey his commandments, love your brother, 
in his little coloring book, he's, John's carefully created the sharp contrast of what this means and what it doesn't mean. All of this comes from something, though. From where? John starts to unpack this in chapter 5. If it weren't for chapter 5, it's possible we might begin to walk away from the book of 1 John with a long list of commandments, all of the do's and don'ts, look for this and not for that, and yet never understand the work that Christ has done for you and will continue to do unto completion. Chapter 5 reminds us that this is a battle cry book. It's a critical intergalactic order sent from the king himself to his soldiers. I hope you get that. The battle plan is being literally laid out in 1 John, specifically for one reason, so that we can achieve victory. And we're going to get there. So turn with me, 1 John 5, 1 through 5. I'm going to read this quickly. It says in verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Notice the tense. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? All right, so as we might expect, John has begun this chapter 5 with the next logical step from chapter 4. Really, this is somewhat of a repeat, but not really. It's emphatically, unequivocally stated in no uncertain terms, whoever loves God, whoever. If you had any question in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, this is it. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. There is no other way. How in the world do we do this? As we just covered in chapter 4, he's told us, but this is much easier said than done in our own strength, no doubt. One more beautiful link in that chain to be connected. Loving God means an immediate and direct requirement. It's an automatic outcome. It's a commandment. It's to love your brother. This is not a duty-focused love. It's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit's fruit. It's proof. It's the next proof, the down payment of our ultimate glorification of saints. It's authentication, if I can say the word right. It's authentication of our faith, a true birthmark. So as we go through 1 through 5, we see that faith, love, and obedience are primary here as within the rest of the letter. Faith in Jesus is evident, being born again. And those who love God must love those who are born of, uh, of God, or else they don't have true faith. Loving God means that you obey God and also love others. This is powered by, it's birthed from our faith. Uh, from our faith. If we love him, we love his children. We hear this repeatedly. Verse 1, faith is not something you merely state that you have. Professing Christ in word is important. In fact, it's critical. If you profess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, you'll be saved. But true saving faith has an actual life-changing effect. It's not the words that you say. In fact, it involves death to your old self and then rebirth. And this faith brings about fruit, in particular, love and obedience. This is the mark of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. So I want to exhort you in that tonight. Love your brother. 
I do want to just mention why are we loving others. I think it's important to say obedience, yes, it is for us, for our edification. We see that in First John. For the other person, yes, it's for their edification, yes, too, uh, to all of that for the church, for its edification, the building up of one another. But primary, it's for God and for his glory. It's not about us. None of the testimonies of God are about us. Romans chapter 2 tells us that the opposite of this is what the world does. Not only does the world, the ungodly, suppress the truth that we see in Romans 1, but they delight in the evil. This is the opposite, right? Stark contrast. They delight in the evil. They encourage others to do the same, to walk in the darkness. They literally love the darkness and delight in others who they can entice into their evil ways. Don't sneer because every one of us were or maybe are like one of those. But Christians, reborn believers in Jesus, through whom in faith we have victory, we don't do that. We do not do this. We do the opposite. If you are reborn and you have the Holy Spirit, you will encourage, you will build one another up in obedience to God and to his commandments. Why? Because you love God. And therefore, you love your brother. Loving your brother is not an optional add-on to the love God part. Loving your brother is an, it's an integral part of loving God as any other outpouring of the fruit of the Spirit, which is the real sign of change in your life. And why do you love God? It's because you've been born again. You've been made a son. Let's consider uh, verse 3 for a moment. Faith produces obedience to God's commandments. And this love and faith toward God and obedience toward his commandments will produce in you a love for his children. To love God is to obey. They're inseparable for the authentic Christian. They're absolutely inseparable. What's at stake here is something a bit more I mentioned earlier. Faith begets obedience. The obedience begets the love. This faith and obedience and love is doing something else for you, though. It's faith that's bringing about victory. And it's not just any victory, but a victory of the most monumental kind. This isn't a baseball game. This isn't Texas Tech versus Virginia. This isn't a political victory. This isn't a professional victory. It's no wartime victory. Not the Civil War, the World War I or II, or Vietnam, Korea, Iraq, Al-Qaeda, or thousands of lives being lost all over the world to bring about this word victory. None of those things, they pale in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that's being worked in each and every one of us by the transforming power of the blood of Jesus, the real victory over the world, over darkness. It's a victory of eternal and real significance. How do we know? We know because Ephesians 6 tells us those battles aren't the real ones. We don't battle against flesh and blood. And Ephesians 3 tells us that through the church, God is making known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities, not on earth, in heavenly places. This is how he's chosen to demonstrate his manifold wisdom. This victory that God has given us is spiritual. Producing this victory is faith. You have to follow the chain. The same faith that leads us to obedience and to love. And somehow this leads John to propose a little bit of a strange question. And he says, is obedience to these commandments 
We just said what it's producing, and it's driving toward love. But is obedience to these commandments burdensome? It's a lot. I don't want to give up all of this darkness. Perhaps by some extremely poor and inadequate comparison, it may be, but in the light of eternity, he exclaims, not even close. He says, bring it. John says, give me the victory, Lord Jesus, over sin and death. Break my chains, no matter what the cost is. Jesus says it's better to enter eternity with one eye, right, one arm, one hand, than to risk losing it all forever into an eternity in hell. He says our bodies will definitely be perfected and glorified. Don't worry about the hand or the eye or anything else. Make no mistake about it. But should you risk a future eternity in heaven for 70 years' worth of eyesight that's keeping you from obeying his commandments? No. There's no comparison whatsoever. I agree wholeheartedly with John, and I hope you do too. His commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because the prize, the victory, is far too great. There's one more incredibly good piece of news packed into the beginning of this chapter that we need to go back and look at, I promised. Chapter 5 starts a little differently, in fact, as we begin to see the formation of this final link in the chain, namely that rebirth is the first step. Not faith, not love, none of that. Don't miss it. This is important. It's a work of God that begins first in the believer's life. It's rebirth. So follow with me here as we begin to sort of unpack that. We start to see the, the guts on full display of Paul's letter to the Romans when he tells, tells us that God has done all of this so that no one can boast. We've got to look again at this verse, verse 1. There's a critical order I want to be sure that we don't miss. So we do not save ourselves by deciding ourselves to have faith. We cannot just manifest faith. The work of God in our hearts does not begin after we decide for ourselves that we want to believe in God. Accept Christ as our Savior, and now he'll grant us eternal life. So many Christians believe that today. And they'll say words like, I found Jesus. I can't stand that song. In effect, what they're really saying is, look what I have done. Paul says, no one can boast. There is no boasting before the throne of God. Man says, well, after I believed him, then he saved me and I was born again. This is the typical pattern that we hear and that many profess and frankly even boast in. Belief first, then regeneration, then fruit. That order is way out of line with Scripture. In fact, we see right here in 1 John 5, 1 through 5, that we are first born again. God does the work, and then he gives us the faith that we need as a gift. Look at it carefully. Go back to the original languages if you don't believe me. The language is clear. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, already born of God. You believe because you've been reborn. 1 Peter 1.3 says that God caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not our works, not our attempts at loving others. Those come after as the work of the Holy Spirit. Our faith is the work of God, not of our own intelligent doing. And praise God for that. I hope you'll agree. Thank you, Jesus. My eternity doesn't hang on the 
terribly inadequate intelligence of my own brain, my own ability to make eternally wise decisions and to conquer sin on my own. As the Lord knows, I would not be seeing an eternity in paradise. To be clear, God saves us and then grants us faith. You can't overcome the world if you've not been born again. And you're not born again except by the work of God. Faith is a product of our new birth, not the other way around. Thank God for his manifold wisdom. The fruit of the Holy Spirit then produces in us love for the Father and a desire to keep his commandments. If you're not loving the Father and you're not loving your brother, pray for rebirth. If you've been reborn and you're struggling with those things, confess your sin. And when you go before the throne, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins. The same faith that's given to us gives us victory over sin and death. And if you're looking for victory over this world, over the darkness, you're not going to find it anywhere else. There's small groups tonight. I, I would encourage you to discuss what it means when you're not keeping his commandments, and when you're not seeing that fruit. These words, by the way, are a little bit different for our beloved John. Overcome, victory, overcoming the world. These aren't words of love. What's John talking about? It's happened to him. He tells us there's only one path to victory, and you need to know. It's faith in Jesus Christ. So in verse 5, let's be sure that we're precise here as well tonight. What is the object of our faith? Because there can be no mistake, and this one's easy to miss, believe it or not. It's not the church we attend, our membership. It's not the cross on the wall. It's not the songs that we sing. The object of our faith, very specifically, John tells us in verse 5, is Jesus Christ. We're right back to verse 1, if you haven't noticed already, as John so eloquently does to us throughout this letter. Faith in Jesus Christ, none other, is what leads us to victory over the world. And why? Because he is the firstborn raised from the dead. Christ is the perfected Adam. He's the incarnate word of God. He's the only one able to forgive sins. Faith in Christ is what grants us victory through Christ and his work in us have to truly believe in Jesus. I encourage you to talk about what that means to you in your groups tonight. But love is the main thing. We don't want to forget this in chapter 5. The point of this passage isn't to try to parse which is preceding or more important, faith or love. The point is that faith is a gift and love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, not workings of our own. I like how Jonathan Edwards says it. He says it like this. Saving faith, saving faith, it's implying a different kind of faith. Saving faith implies in its nature divine love. Our love to God enables us to overcome the difficulties that attend keeping God's commandments, which shows that love is the main thing in saving faith, the life and the power of it by which it produces great effects. Verse 3 tells us that it is the love of God that lets us keep his commandments, and then verse 4, which tells us that faith in Christ overcomes the world, which is what keeps us from obeying God's commandments, by the way. Did you catch that? Verse 3 tells us it's the love for God that lets us keep his commandments. And then verse 4 tells us that faith in Christ overcomes the world, which is what was keeping us from obeying his commandments. Man, he gives us the ability, and then he overcomes every obstacle for us, which makes loving him even better. If only we would believe. One intricate web of faith, love, and obedience. If there's one thing we know, this is the work of God in your life, produced in you, not by you, all of which gives you power to overcome the world. 
I want to uh, begin to wrap up tonight. I want to give you four clear points about how this is all predicated on your rebirth in verse 1. These are more from a technical point of view, not necessarily exhortations to go out and do. Uh, but just to recap, I want to make sure that I'm clear. First is saving faith begins with rebirth. Saving faith begins with rebirth. Rebirth. First John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Faith begins with a critical work of God, namely regeneration or rebirth. We're reborn, and this brings about saving faith. The second is this faith counts us righteous. We are justified by this faith, or we're counted righteous through this faith. And Romans 5, 1 tells us that since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness is granted to us as a result of faith in Christ, which comes about as a result of rebirth. The third one, keep following it. Stick with it. We're now legally heirs to the throne with Jesus. We're now children of God. John 1, 12 through 13 tells us that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. Number four, we are now his children. Heirs, born again, faith-filled, righteousness imputed, legal children, the Holy Spirit produces in us fruit, namely it's that love. You gotta go back to 1 John 3, 14 we discussed earlier. John tells us we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Did you catch that? New birth brings about a Holy Spirit fruit-producing new creation, producing love. And then last, number five, I'll give you the bonus. God gets the glory. We get eternal life with the Father. None of us, not a single one of us, can boast about it. John 17, 3 tells us this is eternal life, that they know that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'd give you John 3, 5 through 8 as well. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And John 3.3 says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the work that Christ accomplished on the cross and the grace and mercy extended to you and I as sinners worthy of nothing more than an eternity in hell, should grow inside of us this love and a passion for nothing other than the renown of his name, telling others about Christ, to love and obey his commandments and to love your brother. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Do you see how this ties together? If you've been born again, then the kingdom of God must be your treasure. I love Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. I hope you know and appreciate that nothing in this foreign land that we live in is richer or finer than our Savior, Jesus Christ. We can't get distracted by the sideshows of these earthly pleasures, caught up in love for the world rather than for our brothers, caught up in the pride of life, as John calls it, as James calls it, friendship with the world is 
hatred toward God. As we uh, get closer to Easter, by the way, we should remind ourselves that Jesus laid down his life. There was a curtain that separated us from God that was split in two. This isn't a work that we could accomplish on our own. The earthquake that shook our planet and Jesus Christ became the firstborn from dead. The real death, by the way. He conquered death. You and I did not. Our victory will be through him. He took up his own life again. He even walked and he dined with his disciples. Hundreds of people saw him after he raised from the dead. This is he. It's he who is the object of our faith that we see in 1 John 5. The Mount of Transfiguration, he took off his flesh and he was literally transfigured before the eyes of man and ascended up to the Father. We are fully incapable of escaping on our own darkness. He gives us new life freely, a rebirth. We also hear called open heart surgery. He performs on us, replacing our hearts of stone. The rebirth. He justifies us through his blood. He continues this work that he's began in us, and we will one day be glorified by him through his amazing grace. And I hope you know all of his creation is longing for this revealing of the sons of God. It's rooting for you. I thank God for rebirth. I hope you do as well. I close today uh, with those encouraging words of John that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. I don't want to spoil the rest of chapter 5 for you because I know others must come, but I can't not tell you how John closes the chapter his final words in chapter 5. And if you believe all of this that we talked about tonight in the consummation of 1 through 5 that we covered this evening, you sold all you have to buy the field. Verse 21 tells us better protect it. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray.